Hosea chapter 1. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we have the privilege to worship you through reading and studying your word. We ask that you would help us to hum humble ourselves before you to hear what you have said, that we might know you as you revealed yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is my call in life, the call of ministry, is to point people to know God, to know him in the way that he has revealed himself, not to teach you some philosophy that has come along from men, but to point you to what God has revealed about himself in the pages of his word. It is my delight to do that, and we will do that this morning by looking at numerous Bible passages, and Hosea chapter 1 will serve for us as a, an entryway to understand three of the concepts that we're going to discuss from Exodus chapter 34. We are coming to understand God, the way he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus 34, as you remember, a way that he has revealed himself and reiterated that numerous times throughout the Old Testament text so that we would recognize the importance of that passage that is the basis of our study, Exodus 34. But as we open our time this morning, we want to consider this historical example from the book of Hosea. Take a look, please, with me at chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. So he introduces these kings, one set of kings from Judah, the southern two tribes of the nation of Israel, and then the king Jeroboam, of, uh, son of Joash, from the northern ten tribes of Israel. You remember there's a, a divide between those two segments of God's people. They divided after Solomon's reign under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and Rehoboam. Uh, was, there's a lot that goes into this. Now, what I want you to notice here, this historical marker is in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. That is not to be confused with Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. The only real historical information we have about this Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, is in 2 Kings chapter 14. And I'm just going to share a few concepts with you on the screens to my left and right about what the Bible says about this Jeroboam, said he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nevat. Now, that Jeroboam was kind of like the, the marker. He, his, he's like the personification of evil of the evil kings. And so constantly referred to in the evil side, the way that King David is for he followed 
God with all of his heart like his father David did. So there's the good marker and then there's the negative marker. Well, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is, is the negative marker. Well, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, while not Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, is still doing evil in the sight of the Lord. But that's not the end of this discussion. Verse 25, it tells us something good about him. It says he restored the border of Israel. In other words, he secured the borders, made sure that they were safe. This is a compliment. But then in verses 26 and 27, we see how Jeroboam, the son of Joash, was able to do that. It says, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was uh, none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. The reason for me pointing this out is in that historical setting that, that starts this book, we have the concept of God being slow to anger. Slow to anger. The people of Israel are rebelling against him in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And yet God, rather than raining down fire on them, cared for them, blessed them, protected them. Yet, due to the continuance of their sinful rebellion, God was going to judge them. And that is the prophecy that comes from God through the uh, man Hosea. God spoke his judgment, of, of, spoke of the judgment of his people through the prophetic ministry of Hosea. Take a look beginning in verse 4. The Lord said to him, call his name. So this is, he marries Gomer, um, a wife of Whoredom is the way it's recorded in this, in, in other versions. Harlotry, she, she has um, unfaithful in her sexual desires. He marries her, and the first son is born. Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So we have this recognition. God says, I want you to have a child, and this child's name is going to be Jezreel, which means God sows. Now, interestingly, he's going to use that as a play on words a little bit later. So, sowing, you can cast them far off, right? Or you can cast them in a particular place. One is a planting, the other is a dispersing. Well, the concept can be used in either way, and in this first context, it's God's going to disperse his people amongst the nations. Why? Because of their rebellion. God held back his anger, slow to anger. He didn't judge them, but, but that doesn't mean that he won't judge. The judgment does come, and he says it's going to happen, and the people will be spread. Look a little further, verses 6 and 7. She, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy. Now, if you are reading a King James Version, you'll see Lo Ruhama, and that is uh, just a transliteration from the Hebrew, Lo, No, Ruhama means mercy. Call her no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Well, that sounds very discouraging. Verse 7, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, those southern two tribes, and I will save them by the Lord, God, by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or sword, by war, by horses or horsemen. So we have God proclaiming through Hosea in this very pictorial way as he has a child this is symbolic of God's dealing with the nations call her no mercy lo ruhama 
no mercy. Then he goes on and she conceives again. And God has this to say in verses uh, 8 and following. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. Now, if you're reading in another version, you might see lo, not, uh, me. That's two words contracted together, my people. Not my people. Lo, uh, me. Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This is the judgment he casts upon them because of their continued rebelliousness in the face of his mercy and in the face of of his grace, he brings forth judgment. He's slow to anger. That doesn't mean that judgment doesn't come. And so he's forecasting this through Hosea. And we know it to have happened because the Assyrians in approximately 722 came in and defeated them and, and brought them and dispersed them into their own land. And it was just quite a, a horrific scene. This is because the Lord said, I'm slow to anger. That doesn't mean my judgment will not come. But that's not the end of the story. Before he even finishes the book, he gives us a little synopsis of where, where he's headed. And so we see in verses 10 and following a, a, a change in tone. It says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be. Now, the number of the children of who? Israel. That's not the, talking about Judah now. He's talking about the people that he's judging. The number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, similar to what he said to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that, and 15, that uh, the people will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. So we're similar concept. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, lo, ami, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. In other words, my people, my people. Verse 11, and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go out from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Now he's using the same name now, but now he's talking about planting them where he promised the land of promise. I will, I will plant my people in the land I said I would plant them, not scattered abroad, but gathered in. Not, not my people, but children of the living God. We have the reverse of all this. You get into chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this, say to your brothers, you are my people. Not lo ami, just ami, my people. And to your sisters, you have received what? Mercy. Not lo ruhama, but instead ruhama, mercy. This is beautiful. This is who God is. He withholds his judgment, but judgment will come at the appointed time. God is merciful, and he expresses his mercy. And God is gracious, and he expresses his graciousness. While God was slow to anger, there was a day that his long-suffering would be fulfilled, and it was, and we see it in that text. There are three elements of God's character that are the focus of our study this morning from the book of Exodus. If you'll turn there, please, with me. Exodus chapter 34. You'll find that on page 74 of one of our church Bibles. Three elements of God's character that will be the focus of our attention this morning, and that is the fact that God is merciful, God is gracious, and God is slow to anger. Our task over these coming weeks is a monumental task. For the finite to comprehend the infinite, 
finite here, finite here, infinite there. For the finite to comprehend the infinite, we need God's help. One of our society's greatest mistakes is how they try to understand life without the revelation that God has given that they may know him. God has revealed himself through what he has made, through what he has done, and through the people that he has redeemed. We've seen that in our study thus far. However, the most accurate way to know God is through the way he has revealed himself through the Bible. In the Bible, God tells us and gives us all that pertain to life and godliness. Through the pages of Scripture, we have God continually revealing his nature, his will, and his ways. We also have a clear expose on our human nature. The Bible discloses, uncovers, unpacks our sinful passions, our foolishness, and our neediness. Our goal in these weeks is to understand what God reveals about himself so that we will know him more intimately, worship him more passionately, and reflect him more fully. Now you recognize when we talk about reflecting the person and character of God, there are many ways that we have no ability to reflect God's nature, for we are not infinite. We are not eternal or all-powerful. We are not sovereign in our governance, and so we cannot replicate those elements or reflect those elements of God's glorious character. On the other hand, there are character traits that God um, has given to us through the Spirit that enable, who enables us to reflect God's character. We see that in the listing of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. That is a revelation of God's character. Know this. This is an important statement. All that God is, he is simultaneously and without interruption forever. All that God is, he is simultaneously and without interruption forever. God never changes and he never wavers. He is never confused, never anxious, never fearful, never frustrated. He is always love, always holy, always merciful, always just, always gracious, and always righteous. One theologian writes, he is insusceptible to emotional fluctuation. Rather, we worship a God who is in complete control of who he is and what he does. Never is there any action by God that is out of line with his unchanging character. Instead of being divided by different emotional states or overcome by sudden, unexpected moods, moods that reveal just how vulnerable and dependent he is on what we do, the God of the Bible is a God who never becomes anxious, lonely, or compulsive. We have to know these things. Ladies and gentlemen, too often, 
Our impression of who God is starts with us. The way we see the world. The way that we experience the world. The things that we do. And it reflects in our minds of who God is. That's backwards. God has revealed himself to us in the pages of scripture. And we have to start from him down to us and have who he is inform who we are, not the other way around. Our society too often has a God of their own making. Among the many reasons that God is not shifting, twisting, turning, frustrated, anxious, compulsive is the fact that God is eternal. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is not subject to the sequence of time. He knows the end from the beginning, for he is the end and the beginning. Because of his transcendence of time, he is not reactionary. He is not reactionary. Not only is he not nervous, anxious, or fearful, he is never covetous or lustful. He is never pining for anyone or anything. God does not lash out in uncontrolled rage or recklessly pursue anyone or anything. God could never, listen carefully please, God could never be accurately described as reckless in any way, shape, or form. God's love cannot be described as reckless, but as amazing, abundant, astounding, incredible, boundless, even relentless, but never reckless, for that is contrary to his nature. This morning we will continue our study and our examination of how God revealed himself to Moses that again has been reiterated time and time again in the law, the prophets, and the writings, in, in the law, in history, in, in the uh, poetic literature, and in the prophetic literature. God has reiterated his introduction of himself time and time again. And so our study this morning will revolve around these three truths. God is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. For the sake of our processing this, we're going to begin with the concept of slow to anger. So, truth number one, God bears with the sinfulness of man. God bears with the sinfulness of man. Listen uh, to what the Bible says, beginning in verse 5 of Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And rightly, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and did what? Why? Because the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
He said, I am Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, Ruhamah, Hanan. And then he says, slow to anger. I am the Lord, I am merciful and gracious, and I am slow to anger. The, the opposite of slow to anger is what? Quick-tempered, um, flash, flash uh, fire, boiling angry at the moment's notice. Proverbs 14, 17 has the opposite of this expression where it says, a man of quick temper acts foolishly. And a man of evil devices is hatred. So the opposite expression is quick temper. Rather than having a short fuse, God's expression of his judgment is held until the proper time. Remember, we're trying to understand how God reveals himself. His judgment is held until the proper time. Last week we noted that there is a point at which God's long-suffering is completed or fulfilled. You can see it in his expression of judgment in the book of Amos and in God's delaying giving his people the land in the book of Genesis when he made this promise to Abraham, but he said it's going to be 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, these sinful people that do not know me as God, I'm not going to move them out of their land yet because they haven't sinned to the point that my judgment will be brought forth. This expression does not say, slow to anger, that's the expression we're talking about right now, this expression does not say that God is not angry with sin. It says that he patiently holds back his judgment. Take a look with me at Psalm 7. Psalm 7. Right now we're discussing the truth that God bears with the sinfulness of man, and we're recognizing it under this expression, that he, how he revealed himself, that he is a God that is slow to anger. And in Psalm 7, the first five verses, we recognize that the enemies have come up against David, and David seeks to find his refuge, his shelter, his safety in the person of God. This is what he says in the first five verses. Take a look at verse 6 now. Arise, O Lord, in your, what does it say? Now, did God become angry? Did something happen and now God's judgment comes forth? Or does God always angry against sin and holds it back and then at the right time lets it out? See, there's a, there's a difference between these. God is simultaneously, without interruption, who he is forever. He is always, always angry against sin. He didn't suddenly change after the cross. And now sin is no big deal to him. Listen, sin all you want. Jesus covered it all. Don't worry about it. No big deal. The character of God is always the same. Without interruption. And so God's anger towards sin is the same after the cross as it is before the cross. And his willingness to be slow to anger is the same before the cross as it is after the cross, because this is who God is. David says, O Lord, in your anger arise. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. 
Let the assemblies of the people be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. For the Lord judges the peoples, David says. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Now he's not saying, if I stood in your presence right now, my righteousness will stand against yours. That's not what he's saying. He's comparing his rightness over against his enemies that are pursuing him. Judge my righteousness over against the fury of my enemies, my adversaries that are coming up against me. I am placing myself under your protective care. I'm finding shelter, refuge in you. Judge me in accordance with my righteousness in this scenario. Look down at verse 9. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous who test, uh, you who test the minds and hearts. O oh, righteous God, my shield, my refuge is with God who saves the upright in heart. Ready? Verse 11. God is a righteous judge. Will you read the rest of the verse with me? And a God who feels indignation every day. Well, that's not popular. She put that out on, on, the, on the church sign, right? God feels anger with the wicked every day. How many will that draw in? Some, <laughs> some, some people like anger. The point is, God and his dealings with sin, it's always the same. Every single time there's sin, God's reaction to that sin, it's not a reaction. God's dealing with sin is the same. God does not dwell well with sin. Sin doesn't have a place in God's presence. Why? Because he's holy. And he's just. Just is a related term to God's concept of righteousness. Righteousness is God always does what's right. Justice is God requiring that righteousness in others. God's justice is always, always the same. And so it's, he's letting us know, David is, that God, from the first sin to the last sin in human history, is angry with sin. Pause, because I, I, I can't bear to wait until the end for this. Don't forget the term. Ready? This is one of those big 25-cent theological words. Ready? The term propitiation. You know what propitiation is? It's the settlement of God's wrath against sin. What is the means of propitiation for our sin. The Bible tells us it is the once for all perfect, complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ in the place of sinners like me. In the place of sinners like you. Jesus is the settlement of God's wrath against sin. That doesn't mean the, that God's wrath against sin wasn't there in that sin, but that in the, in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's wrath against all of these sins has been settled because Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection are, ready, sufficient, enough, enough to pay the full weight of that sin. This is the most glorious concept that any human could ever co uh, comprehend because my sin yesterday, today, and tomorrow warrant rightly a 
just, eternal judgment from God. And yet Jesus stood in my place. And he took that just judgment on himself to bear my debt, to bear my condemnation, to bear my guilt, so that God's wrath will never be felt on me. And that could be true of you if you know Jesus as your Savior. Take a look a little further with me, please, at the book of Romans, chapter 3. While sin is an offense to God and calls for his wrath, he holds his wrath for the appointed time. God is not reactionary. In Romans chapter 3, we have a beautiful declaration of this. Remember, we're not trying to figure out who God is by what we feel. We're not trying to figure out who God is by what we experience in life. We're not trying to figure out who God is by some book we read somewhere sometime or some lecture we received somewhere sometime. We're trying to figure out who God is by how he, how he declares himself. Here in Romans chapter 3, it is just beautiful. Look, please, with me at verse 21 and following. Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What does the next part say? For all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified by his grace as a gift if they come through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen carefully to verse 25 whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. In other words, that doesn't mean that God didn't have the appropriate and same judging anger toward that sin, it's that he held it back. He held it back. Because he's not a reactionary. You've heard many people talk about how I'm afraid if I say this, or if I walk into that church, God will rain down lightning bolts on me because I'm so wicked. Have you heard someone say that to you? This is their excuse why they don't go to church. Tell me, am I the only one that's heard people say that? Okay, you've heard All right, thank you. I, I thought, I've heard, I've heard it so many times, I thought it was like regular. Oh, I couldn't go, if I walk in there, everything bad will happen. This is, this is not how God works. He holds his anger because he's not bound by time. God holds his anger until the appointed time. So he says, God held back his judgment of sin, passing over sin, until the propitiation, who is this? Jesus, took the weight of that sin upon him. So God's people of all time, past, present, and future, their sin has been completely, completely dealt with on the cross in the person of Christ, a perfect once for all, satisfying sacrifice 
for sin. Verse 26. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He might be just and the justifier of whom? Everybody? That's not what it says. The one whose faith is expressly, solely in Jesus. See, this talks about God's righteousness. It talks about God's um, anger against sin being completely eliminated, um, completed, completely absorbed in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his sacrifice for those that come to God by faith in Jesus Christ. God is slow to anger. The Bible says this in Psalm 75, verse 2, at the set time that I appoint, I will judge with, what does it say? Equity, with justice. God's character demonstrates that he waits until the proper time to punish sin. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't rain down lightning bolts. He is never out of control. Does, are, is this clear from the passages we've seen? I haven't made this up. This is not my theology or a theology book's theology. We're reading from the pages of Scripture and we're recognizing that God is slow to anger. That doesn't mean he's not angry against sin, but he withholds it until the proper time. And for those that have come to faith in Jesus Christ, that anger is removed forever. Is that clear? That's good news. And while God is rightly angry about sin, he is at the same time, without ceasing or interruption, merciful. Merciful. God is willing to permanently forgive sin. Now, we've already started that process, right, in our discussion. God introduced himself. Remember, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. Now we're talking about merciful, the word ruchamah, ruchamah. There's a beautiful illustration of this historically in the book of Nehemiah. If you'll look there with me, Nehemiah chapter 9. Now, you, you may or may not be familiar with what's happening in the book of Nehemiah, but the people had already gone into the Babylonian captivity. Ezra and those that came with him have come back to build the temple, and God calls this next crew of people to go back and build the walls to really reestablish the people of God in the land. And... At this point, they have begun worshiping the Lord together in the land. The walls are finished. They read the book of the law. The people are taught in in this, and they're crying. They're crying, and, and God conveys through those there, don't cry about what you're hearing. This is a day of joy and rejoicing. You should be partying right now about the glorious things that God has done. And as they come to the next scene, which is uh, Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah is praying. And part of this prayer is a prayer of confession, but he's he's just talking about what God has done. And as we read this, I'm going to read two sections, kind of long, but I'm going to read them kind of quickly. What I want you to recognize is his emphasis on God's mercy. The fact that God is merciful and has been merciful to all generations, but to them specifically, okay? Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 13. 
You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them the uh, right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them uh, commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. And had committed great blasphemies. You, you, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to lead them by the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You hear the mercy? This is who God is. And all that God is, he is simultaneously and without interruption forever. This is who God is. Look a little further, please, at verses 28 and following. But after that they had rest, they did evil again before you. So in other words, they come into the promised land. After they had rest in the land, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your what? Ruchama, mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. You, uh, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them. There's our slow to anger. And warned them by your spirit through your prophets that they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a, what? Gracious and merciful God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Can you feel, can you feel the mercy that they experienced in Nehemiah 9? the people before them, the people 
in that day? And can you feel as you think about you and your own rebellion, your own waywardness, your own irritability, your own covetousness, your own lust, your own evil intentions? Do you feel the mercy that has been poured on you through the Lord Jesus Christ? Does that stir inside your soul? See, God is willing to permanently forgive sin. When God calls himself merciful, the question is, to what extent is he merciful? Does he forgive our sins and then bring them back up to us later on? Listen to how the Bible answers that question in Psalm 103, verses 10 and 11. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. And I should have concluded verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is an eternal, permanent condition of remission of our sin. Remission means removal, taking away. He's taken away our sin. For how long? Well, until you do it again. No! Not the kind of mercy and forgiveness that God is talking about. Not the, not the one that is, is quelled, extinguished through the person of Jesus Christ. All of those sins are dealt with. Dealt with. Which is why when we look at 1 John 1, 9... If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Like you, it, it rolls through your head. It rolls off your tongue. We, we recognize the, the truthfulness of it. The substance of that passage is that God justly judged Jesus already for my sin, which is why he can faithfully and justly forgive me for my sin. God is merciful. He's merciful. This is why those who have turned to Jesus Christ for salvation do not fear the coming day of judgment. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, God bears with the sinfulness of man. He's slow to anger. God willingly um, provides permanent forgiveness of sins. God is a God who is merciful. And now we recognize a third truth about God, still from Exodus 34, verse 6, that God is willing to grant righteousness in life. God is a God who is gracious. He's a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger. We did it, slow to anger, merciful. Gracious, we did it a little out of order just for the logical sake for our consideration this morning. God is willing to grant righteousness in life. The word gracious... Is a, is a beautiful term. And sometimes it's used interchangeably with mercy. As you come to the New Testament, it is a lot less interchangeable. When you come to the New Testament, where you have mercy, you have clearly God's removal of sin. And where you have grace, God's granting of something. The, where it, where the, the term sometimes can become synonymous is sometimes God will grant forgiveness. He's granting something, that's a giving, that forgiveness is a taking something away. And sometimes it's combined when he grants forgiveness. So there's sometimes there's a, a, a mingling of mercy and grace in some of the terminology. But there is a distinction, and I think it's helpful to try to bring a distinction for us to know God better and to know what he's saying better. Mercy 
is God's forgiveness, removal of, of something that we don't want. God's grace is God granting something that we need, something we want. One is God not giving us something we deserve. The other is God giving us something we don't deserve, the favor of God. And so we have a, a reflection like this in Psalm 37, 21. The wicked borrows and does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. Now, it's not talking about something that God's doing. We're just getting a sense for that word, grace, grace. And in Psalm 37, 21, he's talking about the righteous person doing something that's generous and giving, granting something. This is the idea. So when God says he is a God who is gracious, we want to see it in that light, that God is granting us favor in a way that we don't deserve. A sample of this gracious blessing of God comes through the the Psalms. Now, I'm going to share one Psalm, and then we're going to look at a Psalm. Now, this Psalm 6 that I'm sharing, that we're going to look at just on the screen, is a sample of many times that this very type of thing comes up in the Psalms. Listen to what it says. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. What is this plea? The plea is to God to give something. Give something. Be gracious to me. Be generous with me. Lavish upon me something that I don't deserve. Now take a look at Psalm 67, please. Psalm 67 is a good example of seeking the unmerited favor of God upon his people. It's just a short psalm. We're going to read the whole thing. The psalmist writes, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. He changes from it being God, like may God be gracious, and now he's talking directly to him in verse 2, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. What's he talking about? Corn. Barley, wheat, tomatoes, cucumbers, zucchini, summer squash, squash, whatever it is, the earth is yielding its increase. How does that happen? Well, some farmer plowed the field. They prepared the soil. They planted. Where'd they get the soil? Where'd they get the seed? Hmm. How about what comes next? Anything next? Water? Where'd that come from? You can do all that and still be kind of on the outside looking in, right? The sun needs to beat down. And then something, something that we can't make happen takes place in the earth, right? Talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Not going to get into all the seed, seed stuff. That's someone else's category. But all of this is a work that is out of our control, So he's talking about all of the world being blessed with God's unmerited favor. 
God, our God, shall bless us. Now specifically, talking about the people. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. So the, the call here, the, the recognition is that of God granting to people something they don't deserve. God's generous blessing. Of all the blessings that God has graciously granted, there is one that stands far above the others. It's not the corn or the wheat or the barley or the plump tomatoes. God graciously grants to the one who calls upon him in faith the perfect and sufficient righteousness of Jesus Christ, which results in eternal life. God grants, grants, favors generously those that call upon him in faith in Jesus Christ with the perfect righteousness needed for eternal salvation. Listen to these two beautiful passages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, He, speaking of God the Father, made Him, speaking of God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That's God's grace. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9, listen to what the Bible says. That I might be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness granted without our deservedness is the righteousness that is required to live with God forever. The righteousness of God. And how does it come? Through faith. This righteousness is not granted without a cost. To gain a view of the cost of God's granting of righteousness, we need to go in our minds to a cross close to 2,000 years ago. And on the cross, the sinless, obedient, righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ, hung. There on the cross, we see an outpouring on display of God's holiness, righteousness, justice, love, mercy, and grace. These are among the gracious perfections of God on display when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Holiness demands a payment. Justice demands a payment. Righteousness provides the payment. Love brings the payment to bear. Mercy grants the forgiveness from the payment. Grace grants the righteousness resulting from the payment. This is all of the character and nature of God comes to full display on the cross of Jesus Christ. All that God is, He is simultaneously and without interruption 
forever. Have you benefited from God being slow to anger? Have you received His merciful forgiveness of your sin? Have you experienced His grace in making you one of His children? Will you dwell eternally with God? God has introduced Himself to the world. And our goal in these weeks is to understand what God reveals about Himself so that we will know Him more intimately, worship Him more passionately, and reflect Him more fully. You see, learning about the character and nature of God has amazing implications into our everyday lives. You take these concepts of, of mercy, grace, and slow to anger, just these three, and see how they flesh out in your home. When your children does, child does something wrong, you don't say, well, I'm just a merciful kind of guy, so I'm just going to let them do whatever they want to do. I'm just merciful, and I'm a gracious kind of person, so I'm just going to let them do whatever they want. Well, you're going to have some real problems. I don't, I don't recommend flying off the handle. In fact, that's, that's sinful. But there's a, a consequence to actions. And our children need to learn that in, in our homes. But at the same time that we're calling them to account for their sinfulness, we're merci- we need to be merciful. Because we have been the beneficiaries of the greatest mercy that anyone's ever experienced. And so in our holding our children accountable, we do so while forgiving them and by granting them favor, love that lasts and endures no matter what happens. You see, you come back to that Hosea element where God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, to judge you. I'm going to scatter you. You're not going to have mercy and you're not going to be called my children or my people. But that's not the end of the story. God says, I'm going to plant you where I told you I was going to plant you. And my mercy will, will be raining down upon you. And my grace will, will impact you to the point that no longer will I call you not my people, but I will call you the children of the living God. God's mercy, God's grace, it's glorious. Knowing God as he has revealed himself feeds our soul. I, I could talk for another hour. You don't want me to. So I am going to stop, but we have to understand who God is by what he has revealed. Come to worship him more passionately, know him more intimately, and then have those things impact our lives. So in our homes, in our workplace, and all around where God sends us, people can see the impact of God's nature upon our lives for his glory and for their good. Let's pray together. Father, you know the need of each one in this room, and we commit to you that we are ready to have you impact us the way you see fit. Accomplish your will in us. Help us as we sing, that we would sing for your glory. Help us as we leave, that we would leave passionate about knowing you and telling the world about you. In Jesus' name, amen.